You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. You know, you should know, that the practice of our church is to um, submit ourselves to expositional preaching. What's meant by that, a part of what's meant by that is that uh, we desire to hear God's Word verse after verse after verse after verse in the order in which it appears in uh, uh, Scripture. That's not to say that you that a minister begins his preaching ministry in Genesis and hopefully can live long enough to preach through Revelation if he doesn't die. But it does mean that we look at books of the Bible and we want to preach those uh, books in the Bible verse after verse. And this morning we're at a passage in which ministers... Priests, pastors are actually disciplined, and I'm uh, actually grateful for our habit of expositional uh, preaching that I can uh, lay this passage before all of us as I preach it, even though the indictment, particular indictment of the passage, is to uh, me personally, and I think that uh, elders and deacons can also get wrapped up in this indictment. When someone takes you down, you take down those standing next to you, right? It's a wonderful passage that reminds us of how highly God thinks of the church on earth. Little theologians, I'd like for you to draw a picture of a teeter-totter. Are those in playgrounds anymore? Seesaws are probably too dangerous, right? Hmm, I really am an old man. Well, uh, I'm sure you know what a teeter-totter is. I want you to draw on one side um, the things that are important to God, and on the other side of the teeter-totter, things that are important to the world. That uh, teeter-totter imagery is going to show up uh, later in this sermon. I'm going to use the word vacillate. But that's what I'd like for you little theologians to, to draw for me. Our passage this morning is from Malachi chapter 1. This is the second debate in Malachi. Malachi is made up of six debates. Uh, Malachi 1 verse 6 is where the second debate begins. Let me uh, lead us in prayer, and then we'll begin at Malachi 1 6. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you make yourself known. We have thanked you for that already as we've gathered here. Now, Holy Spirit, we would uh, appeal to you that Uh, you would, by the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, uh, being the helper of Jesus Christ, the counselor that he died and ascended into heaven that we might receive, would you be that helper and counselor in this moment in particular? As we look at this passage, in the reading of it, would you apply it to our hearts? As we look at this passage and in the preaching of it, would you apply it to our hearts? Thank you, Spirit for ministering to us in this way. To the glory of our Jesus, amen. Again, Malachi 1, beginning at verse 6. Uh, you should have a Bible. If no, if you don't have a Bible, if you could raise your hand, we'll, we'll get a Bible to you. Malachi 1, 6 through Malachi 2, 9 is what we'll look at. Uh, again, this is debate number 2 that the people bring before God. Malachi 1, 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? 
by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept any offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your, fa on your faces and dung of your offsprings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble in your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is the word of the Lord. You know, in the world God is concerned with his remnant, the church, God tells us from his prophetic literature that there will always be a remnant in the world, and that remnant is his church. And in the church, God is concerned with his pastor so that we can see that in the world God is concerned with his church, and in the church God is con concerned with his pastor. And in a couple of ways, we need to acknowledge that the real importance of this passage has to do with the religious leaders of the day. In verse 6, God is clearly speaking to the priests, and as you can tell by my outline of the sermon this morning, this entire passage is directly pointed at the religious leaders. I want to draw your attention to the big idea of the passage, which is this, that the church is intended to display the greatness of God's name to the nations. The church 
is intended to display the greatness of God's name to the nations. And I'm approaching this subject by way of three headings, that there's something that God says in this passage about the heart of a pastor. There's something that he says about his allegation to the pastor, something about his punishment for the pastor. And then I want to finish by looking at the uh, ideals of pastoral ministry according to God's Word. I think this passage teaches us three things about God's ideal for pastoral ministry in the church. Let's begin then with the first two verses, the, the heart of a pastor. If you recall from last week, God defended Himself against the people who challenged His love for them. They heard God's covenant promises, promises to always be present with them, but rather than trust this affection that God has, they asked for proof. The last debate began with them saying, how have you loved us? And in the process of engaging in this debate with God, they ultimately demoted the character of God and grossly elevated their own character. They assumed that they had the authority to check God's references, to negotiate with him on equal terms, and when they found him lacking, to make a citizen's arrest of God. In this first debate with God, it would seem as though the religious leaders, the priests, were actually no different than the population in general. In verses 2 through 5, we can't find an exception for the religious leaders that they alone believed in God's holy affection for His people, but the people themselves wouldn't believe in that holy affection. No, the priests also engaged in the first debate with God, when in truth it would have been more appropriate for them as priests to actually interrupt the people, to protect the people from getting lost in their own egos and angrily shouting at God, to guard the people not only from God who ought not to be trifled with, but guarding the people from themselves as their own passions were at war within them. But the priests didn't step in. This was the squandered moment of that first debate, the moment to actually care for the people under their charge, but the priests instead unite with the people. They join in their debate with God, this first debate of Malachi 1, 2 through 5. At this point in Malachi, we should already suspect some kind of defectiveness in the hearts of these priests and an illness that would permit them to listen to the people debate with God and lay idly by not stopping them. We ought to, even before we read this passage, suspect that there is a defectiveness in the hearts of the priests. You know, if we consider again the unique historical setting of Malachi's Jerusalem, We would have to say that the job of being a priest in this era was actually a very hard one. Remember that the people are standing in the shadows of a 40-year-old temple that was built by very religiously motivated people, people with hope and a restored religious life and the consequent hope of a restored cultural and political life. But in four decades... Those religiously motivated people, having built the temple, after four decades, they sit and they hear nothing. There's silence. These hopeful people are now elderly. And many of them, most of them, are absolutely out of hope. And then there's the young people in Malachi's audience, the people who were actually born under Persian rule. And perhaps some of them can be persuaded to hope for more than the luxuries of Persia, to hope in those things that God provides, but this would be an uphill battle. To convince a people that God is worth worshiping, 
when the church doesn't seem to be flourishing, when the people have figured out how to navigate the cultural forces with a sense of integrity, and when the economy is sufficiently favorable, well, the job of a pastor, it must have been very hard for the priests in Malachi's era. Sustaining pastoral ministry when the people have no need for God, well, that takes resolve. But just like the people, the priests are not stout-hearted for the ministry. One might think of Adam's call to guard the Garden of Eden, God's special place of fellowship with his specially favored creatures, Adam and Eve. And even though God called Adam to guard the garden, Adam allowed an intruder to not only enter the garden, but to ascend the tree of knowledge of good and evil and to speak and to deceive his wife. The heart of the priest ought to have been to listen to that first debate and to stop it, to warn the people, to recognize the danger in challenging God's affections, in challenging God's character. But apparently the priest didn't stop it. They didn't guard the people. They didn't guard the church. They allowed it to persist. And not only that, they seemingly joined in. And so what then is God's allegation to the priest? Or more appropriately, what is God's allegation to the pastor, speaking as a pastor? And notice the irony that the first debate that God engaged in with the people was a debate that had to do with the people's love for God. One of the ways that their love for God becomes tangible is actually in their corporate worship before God, their offerings to Him. This is important to notice because it isn't the private devotions of the people that God is measuring here. He's not opposed to their piety, to their following devotional literature, to their times of quiet prayer and meditation. God's not opposed to that. These are important, but the measurement that God looks for as an indicator of their love for Him is this, their participation in the corporate life of the church, their public offerings made to him on the Sabbath, that is how God is measuring the people's affections for him. And while the people of Judea themselves who are making these offerings to God, these offerings are received actually by the priests in their capacity to represent these people. As an offering to God was brought to the temple, the various priests, it wasn't ordinarily just one man, the various priests would examine the offering, not simply as a physical specimen, like a biologist assessing gender, size, and quality of the beast, but these priests are actually assessing They're functioning not as biologists, but as practical theologians. What I mean by this is the priest would determine whether the offering itself was correct, which would in turn tell them whether the person making the offering was proper. They're assessing what is offered because what is offered is supposed to indicate the heart of the one making the offering. That's the practical theology of the ministry of the priest. And this is not even specifically Jewish In the 5th century B.C. world, a sacrifice to a deity was meant to communicate something about that deity and about the person making that sacrifice. An agricultural god would receive a first fruit of a worshiper's crop. A fertility god would receive human sacrifice, and the sacrifice is something that was precious to the one making the sacrifice. Blood is a symbol of life, and so uh, peoples that worshipped fertility gods tended to uh, offer their children 
as sacrifice. The sacrifice to a god of war, uh, that god would receive a significant war spoil that was precious to the one making the sacrifice. The sacrifice would always represent a great loss to the offerer, an indication of what they're willing to go without for the honor and the reputation of their god. A high and holy god would receive only special sacrifices that match his wishes and that match his dignity. And so God is challenging the religious affections of the people, the the warmth of their regard for God as they come before him as a body. God is challenging their love for him. But God is pointing the force of his challenge, not on the people directly, but actually on the priests, the pastors of the people. The priests refuse, refuse to correct the hearts of the people, even as the people debate with God. The priests also refuse to correct the hearts of the people when the priests see plainly before them the blind, the lame, the sick animals of verse 8. And the priests see these animals, accept these animals as an appropriate worship, and they say nothing to the people. These offerings would not even be accepted by Persian governors, verse 8 tells us. These hearts of the people, these hearts need correcting But the priests sit idly by, and at least implicitly, but probably explicitly, they allow the people to believe that God is not so holy after all. You know, even still, it's shocking to read in verse 10 of our passage how desperate the situation is, that God would hope that someone in the church body would rise up and slam shut the doors, preventing the people from coming and preventing the priests from lighting that fire on the altar. The situation is desperate. When you look at verse 8, what do you suppose the word evil refers to? It's a broad word in the Hebrew and can be understood as defective or broken, but also morally wicked. I suspect it refers more to something that is defective or broken. I agree with the commentators who hold that the evil is actually a reference first to the defective offerings themselves, the, the animals on the altar. But second, evil refers to those who are making the offerings. The people, like their offerings, are defective. They're broken. They're polluted. They're lame, sick, and blind. These are not people who worship God as they ought. They're malformed worshipers. They have slipped into that vortex in which their malformed offerings reveal malformed hearts. And their malformed worship continues to sink them deeper into their malformity, which I know isn't a word. But the dark hue of their hearts never gets lighter because they're being trained to worship not a great God, but a God of their own devising. They've made a lesser God, and they worship this lesser God in a way appropriate to his size. Malformed creatures offering on the altar malformed creatures. Malformed creatures placing on the altar malformed creatures. And the priests, they not only say nothing, they allow the people to have this false sense of security, presuming that they stand properly before God because they, after all, were in the temple on the Sabbath or after all were at church on Sunday. And yet God doesn't understand the priest is simply falling asleep at the wheel. There's more than that. 
God says in verses 6 and 7 that their actions show that they actually despise the name of God. According to God's word, the negligent pastor is not negligent simply because he allows the people of the church to turn the worship of the church into a joke. The negligent pastor, according to God, is negligent not not simply by allowing the church to make worship into a joke, but the negligent pastor is actually despising the name of God, despising God's reputation, despising God's standing in the world. That's what that word name refers to. An evangelist is one who holds out the glorious name of God to all the world in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it would appear as though the anti-evangelist is the one who hates that name and who refuses to hold out that glorious name of God in Christ Jesus, but instead despises that name. And this is the charge that God makes to his priests. He is calling the pastor to be zealous for the reputation of God. To cry out as Daniel does, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. There's the job description of a pastor. Blessed is the name of God forever and ever. And yet these priests show by their actions that they actually hate that reputation. They hate that standing of God. That's the allegation that God makes to these priests. Do you suspect that there's, an, a, there's a punishment associated with that allegation? There's a curious reality here. You see, God holds those who are in positions of leadership in His church to have a specific kind of accountability. Everyone is going to be accountable before God, but there is a special kind of accountability. And that accountability for those who are ordained as leaders in the church works in two ways. On the one hand, the people of the church are called to submit to and follow and imitate their leaders. Hebrews 13.7 is very clear when it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's Hebrews 13.7. And this ought to be shocking to someone who is an ordained leader in the church, an elder or a deacon. When we ordain, that's what we're saying. We're saying that this office is so special, it's authorized by Jesus Christ for his church, over which Jesus remains the head. An elder or deacon ought to marvel that their office is meant to serve God's people in this way. And they ought to be deeply humbled and deeply circumspect that they cannot do this without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so when we ordain a man for ministry, we lay our hands on him as a symbol of a third party that is necessary to equip this man for ministry, that of the Holy Spirit. It is impossible for him to do his work without that Holy Spirit. So Hebrews 13, 7, it ought to humble a pastor. It ought to humble these priests. So on the one hand, the people are called to submit to, follow, and imitate their leaders. That's part of the special accountability for a pastor. But on the other hand, at the same time, this letter to the Hebrews continues, Obey your leaders and submit to them. I'm reading from Hebrews 13, 17. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Hebrews 13, 17, as those who will have to give an account. That word for account is literally word. They will have to respond to God's word. They are singled out, as it were, to stand before God and to be judged by Him for their ministry in the church. 
What's being said of the priests of Malachi's day seems to be a bit more specific, though, than this. We might be able to hear Hebrews 13.3 and Hebrews 13.17 and say, yes, I want to be a part of a church like that. I'm ready for that. And even a minister of the gospel would look at that and say, Hebrews 13.3, I especially like. People are supposed to imitate me. I like that. Hebrews 13.17 says that I'm to be held uh, accountable before God. And I'm okay with that as well. And it might be a point of boasting for a minister. But what Malachi is saying to his people by the Holy Spirit seems a little bit more specific than that. Looking at Malachi 2.3, God says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. You need to understand the picture, of course. The animals were brought into the temple, into the temple, and any uh, excrement was uh, shoveled and taken to a place outside of the temple where it would be burned. Exodus 29, Leviticus 4 are clear about these instructions. The animal waste, then, in Malachi 2.3 is a very picturesque way of describing separation from God. It's what belongs away from the temple, not in the temple. And as God coats this feces on the faces of the priests... He's saying that just as you have defaced my reputation, I will deface your reputation by barring you from my temple. Scholars debate if he is talking about removing the priests from service or if he's removing them from eternal life altogether. The first is certainly the case. But there's a pretty good argument for the second as well. But it hurts to think about it. God so loves his people that he will actually exercise a special punishment on those who are not his priests, but instead are masquerading as his priests. Regardless of the ultimate home of these priests, once they have been separated from God, experience does show us, experience does show us that in this day, that priests and pastors like this, who still continue to preach in a way that despises the name of God, these pastors, they tend to still have churches. That is their message of a small God who is willing to accept small offerings. It tends to be the kind of message that doesn't fail to draw a crowd. We know that by experience. But God will punish His priests. God has instituted the ministry of a pastor for a purpose, and that purpose is for his glory, for his name, for his reputation. And the punishment is extraordinary. Let's draw some conclusions in closing, shall we? What might we be able to surmise as the ideal for God's pastor here, looking at the closing of this passage? Again, I want you to remember that the people of Judea, living in a geography of only 600 square miles, pathetically unimportant to the king of Persia, and destined to never be an independent nation, surrounded by Persia as they are, and almost sick to the stomach if they begin to compare their miniature temple with the grandeur of Solomon's temple. These very people, these people of Judea, they I need you to remember that these people vacillate between spiritual depression and outright lust for the luxuries of Persia. That's their vacillation. Spiritual depression at the bygone days and, and how those bygone days might be restored. That on one side and on the other side, a lust for the luxuries of their new king, the king of Persia. They're in a dangerous balance. A dangerous balance. 
It's almost as if on any day they could become more devoted to God or they could sloppily cast themselves to the cares of the world. And what kind of a pastor does God have in store for such a fragile people as these people of Judea? This passage, the second debate with God, the one brought by the priests, teaches us three things about God's pastor. Now, these are not exhaustive things, but rather these things seem to be specifically taught in this passage. The first one is this, that God's pastor is a man who watches the people closely to better teach them God's word. God's pastor is a man who watches the people closely to better teach them God's word. He has to take seriously a person who professes faith in Christ, but who persists in his argumentative spirit with God. These are the people of the first debate, Malachi 1, 2 through 5, who say that they belong to the kingdom of God, but who constantly test God, doubting that he keeps his promises. A pastor should recognize this and remind those people that God is worthy to be trusted. He's worthy to be trusted. This pastor has to take to them the word to teach them and display to them the authority of that word to show them that in that word are two things, that God is worthy to be believed and that it is sinful for the clay to doubt the potter. Those are the two things that a minister needs to submit to in his own life and he needs to teach the people of God that God is worthy to be believed and that it is sinful for the clay to judge the potter. I like the statement of David Wells regarding the fact that the church has been given the truth of God and his word. And Wells says this, he says, if the truth is, if the church is not in possession of truth, then it has been left speechless. It has nothing to say. Without this truth, its private insights are no more believable, no more compelling, and no more desirable than anyone else's in the world. If the church is not in possession of the truth, then she ought to be silent. But God's pastor is a man who watches the people closely to better teach them that word. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. God's pastor is a man who helps the people make appropriate offerings to God. He helps the people make appropriate offerings to God. A pastor has to measure the lives of people in the church in such a way that the sacrificial offerings of their lives are acceptable. Romans 12.1 guides the pastor in this, knowing that all of the gifts and abilities of God's people are not to be devoted to the people themselves, but to be devoted to God in such a way that their lives proclaim God and not self. Hebrews 12.1 says that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, and a minister of the gospel is to help the body glorify God as living sacrifices, but also to help the body refrain from despising God by withholding those gifts and actually not giving glory to God with their lives. God's pastor is a man who helps the people make appropriate offerings to God. The third and final is this, that God's pastor is a man who displays appropriate hopefulness for God's church. Here's what I mean by this. A pastor has to display to the church of Jesus Christ a robust hope in God's plan in and through Christ. In our passage this morning, verses 11 and 14 are the most controversial. There are more articles about those two verses than the other verses in this particular passage. 
Verse 11 says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then verse 14 adds, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. If we refuse to see in these two verses a foreshadowing of the church under Christ's rule, then we will be sorely, sorely lost. Here is a picture of the expansiveness of the church under Christ's rule, energized by the preaching of the gospel as it leaves this 600 square miles of Judea and goes to the ends of the earth, says Acts 1.8. Christ doesn't die on the cross for the political entity of Judea. He dies for a church that encompasses hundreds of political entities and domains and ethnicities. The offer of the gospel is meant not just for the, for the Jews, but for the Persians as well. And not just for the Persians, but for the people in Malachi's audience have, whom they've never met before. The substitutionary death of Jesus is to be extended to all humankind, that the hearers of the gospel might become believers in the gospel and hallow God's name, making pure offerings with their lives, cleansed by Christ's righteousness, and offering incense before God in the form of prayers with a clear conscience. Eugene Peterson says this, he says that the Christian church has a doctrine for equipping people to deal with the future. Do you hear that? We worry about the future. We fret over the future. But the Christian church has a specific doctrine for equipping people to deal with the future. And it's the doctrine of the hope of the gospel. God's pastor is a man who displays appropriate hopefulness for God's church, even in the face of persecution. God's pastor is one who preaches the hope of God as the plan of the gospel extends into the world. What are these three things? Well, let me finish by this, by just asking that you would pray for the elders and deacons of this church and that you would pray for me as your pastor, that I would fare well under God's accounting. It's right here and it's also in the end of Hebrews. I'll be held to account. Would you pray that I would fare well under that accounting? Would you pray that I would exemplify these three things in God's pastor, that God's pastor is a man who watches the people closely to better teach them the word, that God's pastor is a man who helps the people make appropriate offerings to God, and that God's pastor is a man who displays appropriate hopefulness for God's church. Would you pray that as your pastor I would exemplify those things? And then finally this, would you pray that this church would be God's church? that this church would display the, the greatness of God's name to all the nations of the world. Would you pray that for this church, that this would be a church that proclaims and displays the greatness of God's name to all the nations? Those are the prayer requests, that I would fare well under God's accounting, that I would exemplify these three qualities in this passage for God's pastor, and that the church would display the greatness of God's name to the nations. Thank you for offering those prayers. Let's offer that prayer now together. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for a word that exposes, a word that makes us naked, makes us vulnerable. Thank you for that word that truthfully describes who we really are as people in need of grace. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for helping us to understand who we are as humans and who we are as Christians. Father, would you help me in my ministry before this body, 
These are the people whom you have called me to shepherd. Father, would you help me to be the kind of pastor that you have for this body that I might fare well under your judgment? Heavenly Father, judge me and discipline me as you see fit for your own glory that the gospel would go forth. And then, Father, would you uh, help me to exemplify these things that uh, Malachi seems to be addressing to the defective priests in his era, that I would watch your people closely to teach them the word, that I would help them to make acceptable offerings of their lives to you, and that I would always be cheerful and hopeful in the things of the future that you have for us in Christ Jesus. And, Heavenly Father, would you use this church as but one body that displays the greatness of your name to all the nations. Thank you, Father, for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.